Our passage this evening is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and we'll be looking also at Genesis chapter 6, so please be prepared to turn back to that. Before I read the children's questions, I had a funny experience this week. I saw a video of what I think might have been uh, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes or something like that, and there was a contest, and there were a number of young adults lined up, and the question that one guy was asking them was how many people were on Moses' ark? And each one after another would give a number. And then you had to run a lap if you got it wrong. Well, finally someone caught on and realized it's not Moses' ark, but Noah's ark. And now I've set myself up. So if I say Moses during this sermon, you'll know why. But we're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Children, these questions. First, why was God grieved by mankind? Two, what did he warn Noah about? Three, what did Noah do that helps us see that he believed God? And four, here's a tough one. How does Noah's ark remind us of Jesus? Hebrews chapter 11 verse 7, is simply this. This is the word of God. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. There ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the glorious history of redemption that you've recorded for us to strengthen our belief, to strengthen our faith, to help us to see the ways that you work and the way that we're to respond to you. And so, Lord, now as we examine this passage together, where we ask that you administer to us through the preaching of your word, so bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit, for both the preacher and the hearer. We come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage brings us back to a world that had wholly given itself over to depravity. Depravity had blossomed. You might say moral restraint was thrown to the wind. The crown of creation declared war against the holy God and war against itself. It's self-destructive to immerse yourself in sin. They began crossing all kinds of boundaries, spiritual boundaries, violating standards, probably giving themselves into idolatry and all kinds of perversity and violence for sure. The creature had risen in rebellion against the creator. Passage brings us back to that world, but our passage also brings us to an individual, a man named for comfort. And while undoubtedly back in the days before the flood, there were others who were godly in the line of godly people, there was one that stood out among all the others. Turn back to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, still in the early days of God's creation. And we'll see in our passage both the extent of corruption in God's reaction, but also the kindness and mercy of shown to Noah. This is chapter 6, and we'll begin in verse 5. 
the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the Lord. The world was so extremely corrupted. And yet Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In the King James it says, Noah found grace, and that's a legitimate translation, Noah found grace. Noah was a man who walked with God, and it was probably normal for him to have regular communication with the Lord, but a revelation comes to him. Ominous warning, an ominous warning against the entire earth and its inhabitants. Noah's revelation is really God's revelation to Noah. This revelation reminds us that this is not, and I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but this is not a fun kid's story. It's a gut-wrenching account of sin and judgment. God was fed up with his own creation, the crown of his creation. God was fed up with their corruption. The man and woman and their offspring that he made in his own image have become by and large, a stench in his nostrils. Sin was grievous. Sometimes we minimize how offensive sin is to God, but when we see this picture, we recognize how utterly offensive sin is to God. And then when it's out of control, there's bound to be a reaction. God had given warning some time ago, and if we follow what came before this, there was a hundred-year period where there was warnings. Warning time was almost up. In these days was a man named Methuselah. Noah would have known this man, Methuselah. His name meant when he is gone, it will come. Noah knew Methuselah. Noah lived alongside of Methuselah. Noah, most likely, if they had them, attended Methuselah's funeral which for him would have meant that this terrible thing that God was about to do to his own creation was about to come. God gave him the warning. What was Noah's response? That's really the essence of our passage in Hebrews this evening. What was Noah's response? I love the fact that, Mo no, here I go, that Noah did not ask any questions. He didn't ask any questions of God. Wouldn't you have had questions? You think of what God is calling Noah to do. It's really extraordinary, and they were things that Noah had never seen before. Things that he had to believe but had not seen before. And it began with this. We're told that, that Noah had reverent fear for God. That was the number one driving force in Noah's response to God. He feared God. He knew who God was. He knew that God is an awesome God. That's tragically an attitude that's severely lacking in much of popular Christianity, where we've taken God very casually, very lightly. God is an awesome God, and Noah knew that. He feared God. He had reverent fear for God. 
And his response was faith in the things that were unseen. We learned about that in the beginning of chapter 11. We also learned that all Old Testament saints had this, this long view that was faith in the Christ to come, that on the horizon, Old Testament saints, through types and signs and sacrifices, would see that a Messiah was coming. That's the salvation kind of faith that they had and that they needed. Noah would see that even in the imagery of the ark itself, where, where the saved people would be included, sheltered in the ark, like salvation in Christ. But back to what Noah is dealing with here. There's that long view of salvation, but there are the immediate concerns that Noah had to deal with. God told him that there would be a massive flood that would cover the whole face of the earth that had never happened before, that the springs of the earth would well up and the skies would open up and the whole earth would be covered with water. He had never seen that before. This isn't a prediction. This is not from a, a, a weatherman. This is from God himself. And Noah believed that. He had never seen it. God told Noah to build an ark. An ark. What's an ark? God was very specific in what he told him to build, but he had to build this ark in order to save his family and to preserve the animals on the earth. And Noah had to believe that on the other side of this flood, on the other side of this deluge on the face of the earth, that there would still be life. That it would be worth spending the time and the effort to build the ark. And that life would, after all, be preserved. He had to believe all those things by faith because they are things that he had never seen. And his faith caused him to go right into action. To begin the building, to begin collecting the materials, to get to work, to collect, to gather in two of every kind of animals. According to Answers in Genesis, that included dinosaurs. If you can imagine that. But he gets to work. Typically, the ark is described as as long as a football field and a half. Four stories high, you could stack you could stack three giraffes on top of each other inside of this ark. It said that the material, there were three and a half plus million board feet of timber in the ark. So Noah embarks on this, what's estimated to be a 55 to 75 year building project of this massive floating structure. He did that by faith. And he also did it in the face of what was undoubtedly a lot of mocking, a lot of scorn, a lot of abuse as he was obeying the Lord. People saying, for real? Are you really building this ark? Do you really believe that God's going to destroy everything? There was Noah being faithful. And his faithfulness turns out, we're told, was actually something that condemned the world, that rebuked the world. He and his crew were busy at work. But Noah was also a preacher of righteousness. In my mind, I pictured Noah with a hammer in one hand and a Bible in the other. He didn't have a Bible, obviously. Most 
Sunday school pictures have him with a hammer in one hand and his other hand like this. Forerunner of George Whitfield. That was his motion. But Noah was a preacher of righteousness, so his message was clear. And he undoubtedly pointed out the sins of his generation and called them to repent and turn so that the Lord would perhaps spare your soul. Seek mercy, seek compassion while it might be found. But it wasn't just Noah's message. It was his life. He lived an exemplary exemplary life. His life itself condemned the world around him. He had an observable obedience. And that's something that I'm also afraid is largely lacking in some popular Christianity because we strive so hard to blend into the culture, to blend into our society. We don't want to offend anyone. And we know that the true offense has to be the gospel. But so often we shrink back from true obedience because we want to blend in. Noah would have none of that. He's going to obey God. And so Noah rebukes the world with his words and with his life. And all of this obedience, all of this faith amounted to Noah's righteousness what the word says. Noah was righteous. And there is the sense of that imputed, that given righteousness that can only come from God, that righteousness that is entirely outside of ourselves, that act of grace on God's part where he redeems us. And again, for Old Testament saints that looked forward to Christ, for everyone else after Christ, it's confirmed and solidified in Christ. Righteousness outside of ourselves, only attained by the merits of Christ. But in response to that grace shown to him, he lived a righteous life. In reliance on God, he lived a righteous life. Kent Hughes puts it simply, but I think very well when he says this, when we have true faith, and receive the objective gift of righteousness and salvation from God, it enacts in us a growing subjective righteousness, a righteousness that grows from within. This is precisely what happened to Noah. Noah could say with James, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There was no conflict at all in Noah's mind. That was faith. That was faith. Well, we know what happens in the story. Noah obeys. He closes the ark, and the terrible flood comes. And it's hard to imagine, and scripture is not graphic in what actually happened, but it must have been absolutely horrific. It doesn't take much imagination to picture the earth under a flood and multitudes of people drowning. Peter sums it up simply this way. He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
the wrath of God against all unrighteousness. They're, they're so vividly displayed in the flood. The whole earth, all of mankind, except for these eight. The author of Hebrews understands how relevant Noah's faith is for the people of the Hebrews. It's certainly relevant for us. An abiding example of faith. First of all, that he's a recipient of grace. But as a recipient of grace, he responds appropriately with a life of obedience and actions to prove his faith. Even in the face of mockery and rejection and scorn, at best, just making him feel silly about what he's doing or trying to make him feel silly about what he's doing, but at worst, threatening him, perhaps, for poking his eye in the eyes of the unrighteous. It's a reminder to us that in the face of whatever rejection or scorn or even made to feel ridiculous for our faith or even if things get worse, that we're to stand firm in our faith in the Lord and on our obedience. For the people of the Hebrews, they had to understand that immediately because they were under harassment, plus there was a major catastrophe about to come in 70 AD. If you remember from Matthew, Jesus uses this analogy. He says, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. And when he comes to Jerusalem, it's absolutely terrifying. But there's more. There's more. That's not the end. Thankfully, there's life on the other side of that, but that's just another taste, a foretaste of something that has bigger implications. Bigger implications for mankind. However you might interpret this passage from 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to the word of God. Peter explains it's the second letter that he's been writing to the people. He says, in both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as 
Some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that you, that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. However you interpret that, that's a very sobering perspective on the world. A warning of cataclysmic things to come that will both refine and renew the heavens and the earth. For God's people, we respond in much the way that Noah responded with faith and obedience and testifying to the world around us with compassion because we know that judgment is coming. For the skeptics, as we read about in this passage, who think they're going to get away with things or think that God is slow or God's promise isn't going to come true, they need to understand that rejecting God and living in sin will be judged at his coming. And that the only refuge is grace, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. They also should know that we're not as crazy as we sound when we preach that gospel. Back in the days of Noah, God was merciful. God was merciful to his creation and the crown of his creation. He was going to start over again for them. They would quickly plunge back into their own depravity again, but God made a promise. If you turn back to Genesis 9, beginning in verse 15, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God, his promise, his covenant with his creation is abiding, is abiding, and it's merciful. And by the way, his sign of the rainbow that's the real meaning of the rainbow. It's been grossly appropriated wrongly in our day. That is God's sign of his faithfulness to his creation. And fleshing out from that, his covenant made with his people. Displayed in preserving the family, the line of Noah. Protecting and keeping them. As we read back in 2 Peter 3, we can be sure that God will preserve his people in Christ through his covenant. We don't see it yet, but we believe. 
According to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the longing of our hearts. And so in the meantime, we're to be productive saints under the grace of God, living by faith, living in obedience, testifying to the world, and unshakable and unflinchable in the face of whatever might come, mockery or persecution. May God grant us the grace to be just that, people of God who walk with him, people of faith who serve him, glorify him and honor him, and walk before him with reverent fear. Let's pray. Lord our God, you are an awesome God. And we thank you that when our minds sometimes minimize how mighty and powerful you are, you draw us back to your word. You remind us of your awesome power and your might. And Lord, when we've diminished in our minds the seriousness and the offense of sin, you draw us back to your word and again and again you show us how hideous a thing rebellion against you is. But Lord, you also show us your profound covenant love for unworthy sinners like us. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace towards us. And we know that any righteousness that we have is first and foremost righteousness freely given to us through Christ. The one who bore the wrath that we deserved along with all mankind. But in your great covenant through Christ, our covenant head, you have spared and preserved us and you will keep us. And Lord, as we live in the world that is fallen and broken, we don't despair because we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness reigns. In the meantime, may we truly be marked as your righteous people who are people of faith. Lord, we pray that you would keep us and sustain us. We come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.